the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this installment. I hope uh, everyone had a good Father's Day weekend. Unfortunately, in the city of Chicago, it was not a good Father's Day weekend. It's a Father's Day weekend that's making national and international headlines. And as usual, for all the wrong reasons, my uh, home city of, uh, well, I grew up in the Western Burbs, but lived in Chicago for nearly two decades now, so I know a little bit about this city. And uh, the storyline over the weekend is not an unusual storyline. The numbers change, but the the endemic violence and despair continues. And so over the weekend, 102 people shot, 14 fatally. And it's mostly black victims and black suspects, uh, including four children uh, as uh, young as uh, three years old, three years old, uh, three-year-old uh, McKay James. This brings the total of homicides in Chicago to 305 so far this year. The total shot, which is an underreported statistic, you know, being shot is a catastrophic event, catastrophic injury. 1,572 people shot, 305 killed so far in Chicago this year which is why the Wall Street Journal last week termed Chicago Murder City USA, an ignominious distinction. And just to give you, again, order of magnitude, as if those raw numbers aren't stark enough, it was three weeks ago during the height of the George George Floyd protests and, and associated rioting, the weekend of May 30th and 31st, that on May 31st, You had the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years. And yet this weekend, this Father's Day weekend, there were more people shot than there were three weekends ago where you had the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years. That's how much violence you saw, mainly in the south and west sides of Chicago this past weekend. Chicago Police Chief of Detectives Brendan Dinehan, Dinehan, I should say, excuse me, I had this to say about those four adolescents who were murdered. These kids are not criminals. They're not gang members. They have nothing to do with the ongoing disputes out there, and they just get gunned down for no reason at all. And Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown, recently imported from Dallas, uh, had this to say about to the community about, uh, you know, essentially help us help you, which is also a standard issue line from Chicago officials to uh, Chicago ends for God's sake, for God's sake, help Chicago cops protect our precious children and our families. That's a call that has fallen on deaf ears for as long as I've been on the planet. 
which is uh, north of four decades. So it seems to me that um, given uh, all the conversations we're having about race in America and race and policing in America, uh, now is an uh, as opportune time as any. Perhaps uh, this weekend of carnage in Chicago will get some people's attention uh, to do more than just repeat hashtags like some mindless automaton and think about what we need to do to change the culture in big urban centers beset by violence. Chicago is hardly the only one. And on a per capita basis, you you have even cities that are worse off like Baltimore. Perhaps it's the time, you know, we had this conversation with John Ponder on Friday. If you caught Friday show, John Ponder, who was the founder of hope for prisoners in Clark County in Las Vegas. And John Ponder, who went through a road to Damascus conversion during his last stint in prison, federal prison, where he almost went away for good. Uh, But uh, he decided to turn his life around and devote it to Christ. And uh, today, Hope for Prisoners is a model program that's been recognized by the President of the United States. And John Ponder, a model citizen, after being a career criminal from the age of his early teens to his late 30s. It's a remarkable story. Even more remarkable than John Ponder's turnaround is what Hope for Prisoners has done turning around the lives of other ex-offenders. Why is this so important? This is not the whole solution, and, and nobody suggests it is, including John Ponder. You're dealing with trying to reduce recidivism, Uh, with respect to people who are getting out of prison and are going through, for example, Ponder's Hope for Prisoners reentry program. So this is just a portion of a possible solution, possible remediation. But it's an important one because we know that ex-offenders have, uh, well, number one, become offenders again at a very high clip that uh, repeat criminals are responsible for about 50% of the crime in this country. And we know that the recidivism rate of state and federal prisoners is about 77% within three years of release. So the fact that John Ponder's Hope for Prisoners program has a recidivism rate of 6% is noteworthy and is also worthy of replication and scaling. So if I were thinking about one thing I would want to do as a mayor of a town like Chicago or as a police superintendent, one, you know, reachable policy change I could make tomorrow, it would be to institute John Ponder's program in a place like Chicago, a place like Cook County and other places, too, because I think John may have the secret sauce here, at least to dramatically reducing the incidence of habitual criminals. And what's the secret sauce for those who missed the interview or not familiar with the story? Putting police in fellowship with the communities they protect and serve and even those they arrest. That's what John has done in Las Vegas. Uh, Police officers from the Clark County Sheriff's Office from Vegas volunteering to work with ex-offenders that are going to reenter civil society so that each gets a better appreciation for the humanity of the other goes in both directions. It's not one direction. It's both directions. And per David Brown being the latest to offer a plea to the residents of Chicago 
to uh, end the snitches get stitches culture of silence in particular neighborhoods. That only works. It's only going to happen. Not if you make pleas that superintendents for the last four decades have been making. But if you have police and fellowship with the communities they protect and serve, and again, even those they arrest, the way that John Ponder lives in fellowship and has for some time now with the FBI agent who was the last law enforcement officer to arrest him and the judge who sentenced him. Um, It's going to take a perhaps a remarkable story, a remarkable insight, even though it's somewhat straightforward one to uh, change culture. But that seems to be what has to happen, particularly against the backdrop of police being demonized the way they are. Otherwise, we're just rinsing and repeating the same lines like we're part of a, a an ensemble cast rather than serious adults trying to stop systemic violence and uh, uh, the, the, the senseless killing of children, three-year-old, two teenagers. And from the uh, picture that police, Chicago police were circulating of the individual suspected of killing, murdering two teenagers – He looks to be not much more than a teenager himself. Uh, Andre Archie is a philosophy professor at Colorado State University. And uh, he writes that systemic in National Review, by the way, uh, he's African-American professor. He writes that systemic racism is not what ails black America. Uh, He writes that. uh, If anything is systemic, it is the failure within the black community to see that the breakdown of the black family is the root cause of so many of the social ills that confront the community and black males in particular. The sad fact is that while the diverse group of millennials who marched in the streets with blacks were united by a common cause, many of those same millennials, unlike their black counterparts, went home to intact families and will return soon to their selective colleges. Income, health and educational Inequality will persist until black families are made whole, mostly by their own efforts, and are able to give their children all of the psychological tools needed to be happy and successful. Success is a cumulative process, and one, one, and 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 the once widely agreed on cultural precepts still hold: get an education, get married before you have a children, don't commit a crime. And education means high school diploma. You have a ninety-nine percent chance of never living in poverty, and. Uh, not having uh, engagement with law enforcement. And that's what we want for all these kids, whether they're ours or not. That's not what we're getting with the same old politicians reciting the same old lines in the same old places like Chicago. This is Dan Prophet. I just want to use your love danprofshow.com Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Attorney General Bill Barr sat down for an extensive interview with Fox Business's Maria Bartiroma this weekend. He was asked about um, what's going on in places like Chaz slash Chop you know, whichever you prefer, I suppose, you know, teach his own. Uh, although that's a bygone concept, isn't it? 
Barr said this. Well, in the first instance, uh, it's the responsibility, obviously, of the local officials and then the state officials uh, to protect the rights of their citizens. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the federal government does have a responsibility ability to make sure that citizens are not deprived of their federal rights. And on policing generally? The job of being a policeman in the United States these days is the toughest job in the United States. They're under a lot of pressure, and I was concerned even before these pressures that we were having difficulty maintaining uh, the levels of police we need in our cities, retaining them. Uh, and obviously this uh, environment uh, where they're demonized, uh, you know, w will, will deter a lot of people from continuing to serve as police. And also, I'm concerned of the effect that they may pull back some of their enforcement activities and not take those risks. So I think it could lead, as it's led in other situations, to an actual increase in violent crime and more deaths. And Bartiroma also asked him about uh, the case against former Atlanta police officer Rolf in Atlanta and the Richard Brooks shooting. Uh, he wouldn't weigh in specifically on this because he may have to weigh in on it at some point. But he uh, did offer some notes of concern in terms of how the Fulton County District Attorney came to level the charges against the two officers. Well, because I might be called upon as attorney general to pass judgment on that case under civil rights laws, I don't want to get into the specifics of it, but I certainly would have liked to have seen the Georgia Bureau of Investigations complete their investigation before charges were brought, and also uh, the use of a grand jury. The grand jury process provides some protection to have the citizens in a group decide that there's been a crime committed, and there was no grand jury used in this case. So I think it's important to, to go through the right process before charging someone. I also think there was you know, a fundamental difference, obviously, between what happened in Atlanta and what happened in Minneapolis. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy, former assistant, chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And we'll get to that district in a moment. And contributing editor at National Review, also author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So let's start with uh, what he said about uh, a federal responsibility for the autonomous zone in Seattle at some point, perhaps. I mean, there was a, a killing over the weekend in that autonomous zone in which Seattle police were unable to get to the victim. Apparently, the paramedics of the new independent nation uh, brought the uh, two shooting victims to the hospital where at least one of them passed away. And so what about uh, the idea that the federal government should intervene or the Trump administration should concede uh, this matter to state and local authorities in Washington state and Seattle? Well, I think Attorney General Barr was trying to use, uh, choose his words carefully and also always respect federalism, because I think with him, that's a big issue. He's, he's a, an originalist, constitutionally speaking, and the framers' design here was that most of the internal affairs of the state are supposed to be taken care of by the state government. On the other hand, when he, his mention of federal rights is very broad because since the 1960s and 70s, the Supreme Court has applied most of the Bill of Rights to the states. And in addition to that, you have all kinds of federal rights. So I think what he was hinting at there is that we have these civil rights laws uh, which prevent or make it criminal to deprive people of their federal rights. And your federal rights are very, very broad. So I think if the federal government wanted to jump in here and thought they had to jump in here, they'd have more than 
sufficient legal basis, but out of respect for the federalist structure of our system, they'd like to see the city and state governments take care of it, which doesn't, uh, I don't know what the government is in Chaz, so I, I don't know what's going to happen there. You heard uh, Attorney General Barr's careful comments regarding the Rashard Brooks shooting case and the charges against, uh, particularly the capital charges against Garrett Rolfe. You were less nuanced uh, in your piece in National Review <laughs> <laughs> that we uh, we actually discussed uh, quite a bit on Friday. I mean, you torched the Fulton County D.A. Uh, so give us perspective. Are you similarly concerned about the process? Like, again, not allowing the investigation to be completed, not using a, a, a grand jury uh, to return the charges or the actual charges themselves or both? Well, both. You're right. I did leave my euphemism dictionary home, <laughs> thesaurus, I guess, that day. But, you know, look, under the Constitution, they have to go to a grand jury. You can't just file a murder charge. Uh, the, the, the grand jury protection, I, I made a little joke about it in the column, which was not otherwise a very funny column, I'll grant you. It, but the idea that, you know, the everybody says a, a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. And a lot of times that's functionally true. But a grand jury is a good thing in a case like this one, where a prosecutor to get an indictment on an allegation like this is going to have to convince a grand jury, not only that these cops should be charged at all, but that they should be charged with, all, of all things, capital murder. By, by the way, a, a prosecutor who said, like about five minutes ago, he, he was against capital punishment. So I do think this is not going to stand, and I do think that the reason he rushed it was for political reasons. He knows that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is going to, you know, come to a conclusion that maybe these cops shouldn't even be charged at all. I certainly think from what I know about the case that this is not a criminal case. If you want to talk about whether really, you know, they did things wrong, yeah, I don't think it's a criminal case at all. If you want to say they did, they may have, may have made mistakes along the way, I don't know even if that's a fair indictment given, you know, they were assaulted by somebody who was a career violent felon who was actively violating for the for about the third time that they caught him on the conditions of his release at the time that they confronted him he assaulted them stole their taser and shot it at the head of one of the police officers so you know i mean i don't mean to laugh i just looking at it as a just as a strict legal problem as opposed to you know the tragedy that happened how you could charge the police with using excessive force under the circumstances is beyond me because they're not, they can't let the guy flee. If they let the guy flee and he ends up hurting someone, the cops are in trouble for that. So I just don't see this as a criminal case at all. I see it as a very appropriate matter for the police to investigate it. And if there's some discipline that needs to be, Exactly because I, I understand the, the Ralph, the main guy, has already been fired. But it seems to me that if they wanted to look at it in order to see whether somebody should be suspended or fired or something, that's, that's perfectly appropriate. But the criminal law is supposed to be for intentional wrongs or recklessness that's so out of bounds that the criminal law has to address it. I don't see any chance of that in this case. I don't think the Georgia Bureau of Investigations will see it, and I don't see how a grand jury would indict it. When we come back with National Review's Andy McCarthy, I want to discuss the question of whether or not the 
Rayshard Brooks shooting should be a criminal or a professional slash civil matter. More with Andy McCarthy when we return. Oh no, not me. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with National Review's Andy McCarthy. And before the break, we were talking about uh, the Atlanta police shooting of Rayshard Brooks. We heard from Attorney General Barr on the issue of uh, uh, officer, former Atlanta police officer Rolf specifically, given that this is a presently a capital case. Doesn't Rolf, in terms of the murder charge, still have the issue of shooting Rashard Brooks in the back? He's fleeing and uh, he's shot in the back. And as uh, Fulton County uh, D.A. said, you know, shooting somebody in the back is against police procedure and. If if, well, if if it's against police procedure and it results in the deaths of someone, that certainly opens up a criminal avenue, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a difference, Dan, respectfully, between shooting someone in the back, as in aiming to shoot at somebody in the back who is fleeing and has given up all resistance, and the shooting that happened in this circumstance, which I look very carefully at the tape. Mm-hmm. At the time that he shoots, uh, Brooks is running forward but he has the right part of his torso turned backwards toward Rolf where he's still pointing the taser at him. So under those circumstances where they were both running, Rolf shot him, but it's not like he was aiming to shoot him in the back. And it's not like he was going after a guy who wasn't resisting and wasn't being uh, an aggressive threat. This was a fleeing felon who was in possession of a weapon. So it's not really – when they talk about you're not supposed to shoot somebody in the back, what they mean is, you know, guy's uh, 50 yards away, he's unarmed, and he's – Yeah, the Walter you know, Scott case. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is not that. This is the guy was turned around pointing a weapon at the police officer as he discharged, and he happens to have hit him in the back, but that's because of the offensive uh, posture that the guy, uh, you know, who was fleeing was in. Before we let you go, I want to get your reaction to the termination of U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman of the Southern District of New York, where you spent two decades. Um, uh, you know, pers- every Trump personnel matter becomes a melodrama. This seems to be another such instance. Yeah, this is like a, a total mountain out of a molehill, I think. Um, you know, maybe timing wise, the uh, attorney general and the Justice Department could have handled this better. But I actually think they got double crossed here in the sense that. You know, look, Berman, who was the U.S. attorney, was never confirmed. So he's an interim U.S. attorney. He was never nominated by the president. It's not like he's a full-fledged U.S. attorney. Uh, They have another guy who they like, Jay Clayton, who's the head of the SEC. He's ready to leave the government, but he says he'll stick around if they make him U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is who wouldn't want to be that if you're in the government that you know launched Rudy Giuliani's career. It's a it's a very plum perch in the government. So they want to keep Clayton. 
I would prefer to see someone with SDNY experience, but I'm a snob that way. <laughs> um, and what happened, you know, so Barr goes up to see Berman on, when he's in New York on Friday, and he basically says to him, look, you're out. We're, gonna, we're trying to put Clayton in, but we don't want to lose you. Would you like to be chief of the criminal division in the Justice Department? Would you like to be in the SEC? What, so they were talking about what was going to happen next, but it was made clear to Berman that he was out. And then Barr, you know, Barr tries to call Berman. Berman doesn't answer his calls. I imagine Barr didn't like that too much. So he put the statement out. And Berman then acted like, oh, I've never heard, I never, I had no idea they wanted to get rid of me. Um, When he knew very well they wanted to get rid of him. And then he puts out this ridiculous statement that, you know, the Southern District of New York is the most storied prosecutor's office in the United States. It's done the biggest cases in the country. And Jeff Berman, the interim U.S. attorney, comes out and says, I can't leave until there's a permanent replacement because we need to protect the integrity of our investigations. As if he, Jeff Berman, is necessary to have there at the brink uh, in case, in case you know, otherwise the Southern District investigations will be corrupted, which is about, you know, for anyone who worked at the Southern District for five minutes, that's the most preposterous, arrogant statement that's perhaps ever been made. He's like, so he's, I don't blame yeah. I don't blame Barr and the president for uh, you know kicking him to the curb the next day. But they weren't trying to kick him to the curb. They were looking to give him another job. He's like Eminem. It would be so empty without him at the uh, Southern <laughs> District of New York. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion: The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. If you haven't picked it up yet, do so. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Have a great week. You too. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show because they got the beat the campus beat the campus beat yeah the campus beat yeah well, I've uh, got some good news and bad news in the campus beat segment. Uh, we'll uh, do the bad news first because I'd like to end on a positive note with perhaps what will be the last outpost of Western civilization in higher education, and that's Hillsdale College. But first, we begin with the uh, University of Washington's Center on Reinventing Public Education. They uh, looked at 477 school districts nationwide and how those school districts have responded to the COVID-19 crisis and what they find with respect to virtual education as school districts and uh, institutions of higher education contemplate what the fall will look like for their, for their students. They find that uh, what you have with the virtual education is widespread neglect of students. It's a failure. Only 27% of districts, the nearly 500 that uh, the University of Washington looked at, only 27% of the 
districts require teachers to record whether students participate in remote classes. Remote attendance has been abysmal. During the first two weeks of the shutdown, some 15,000 L.A. students failed to show up for classes or do any schoolwork. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that 10 weeks in, the Philadelphia School District registers just 61% of students attending school on an average day. The same week, the Boston Globe reported that only half of the students are logging into online class or submitting assignments online on a typical day. Uh, Less than 60% of school districts do any progress monitoring, according to the report. The rest haven't even set a minimal expectation that teachers review or keep track of the work their students turn in. And only uh, 42% of districts does homework count towards a student's final grade. And, of course, uh, this is being cheered on by the uh, teachers' unions who are in control of so many of these school districts, particularly in the big urban centers. This is a remarkable statement. Are you ready for this? <laughs> and of course, it's Chicago once again. Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey said that customary, quote, customary forms of grading are inappropriate in a global health crisis, asking, quote, how can such an uneven playing field produce fairness and justice for minority students? Oh, it's not just Chicago. Uh, the uh, L.A. Teachers Union lobbied for no student to receive a failing grade or a worse grade than they had before the shutdowns, declaring that, quote, we are pressing the school district to not mandate summer school for students who earned a D grade simply as an issue of fairness. Current and past presidents of the Teachers Union for Mountain View, Los, uh, Los Altos High School District in California, wrote in April that, quote, in effect, assigning letter grades to our students is equal to assessing their access to technology and Wi-Fi, their housing security and ableism, unquote, catastrophe. And uh, the teachers abdicating their responsibility to educate students or any expectations for their students in terms of homework or specific performance and the teachers union celebrating it the whole way down, and I do mean down, in terms of dumbing down. So there's the virtual classroom, if you want that model codified. Or even if you want some, uh, you're going to plan on abiding some sort of hybrid for K through 12, or for higher ed, for that matter, but particularly K through 12, that's what this study assessed. Pretty daunting. On the flip side, Hillsdale College I mean, I, I do mean it. This could this may be the last West uh, outpost of Western civilization in higher education or maybe generally in education at all. The uh, leaders of Hillsdale College, starting with President Larry Arne, issued a uh, letter on June 18th, end of last week. To um, respond to some of the criticism the college has been subjected to by um, alumni and others insisting that Hillsdale College not remain silent in the face of what's happening uh, with respect to protests over the issues of police brutality or even the larger issues of racial equity in America. The college is told that invoking the high example of the Civil War, Frederick Douglass is not permitted. Instead, the college is uh, guilty of the gravest moral failure for not making declarations about justice and equality. The college is told that it garners no honor now for its abolitionist past. Hillsdale College founded by abolitionists. Just remarkable. But instead, it must issue statements today. Statements about what? 
It must issue statements about the brutal and deadly evil of hating other people and or treating them differently because of the color of their skin. That is, it must issue statements about the very things that move the abolitionists whom the college has ever invoked. The college founding is a statement, as is its reiteration, a reminder of its meaning and necessity. The curriculum is a statement, especially in its faithful presentation of the college's founding mission. Everything the college does as a, is a statement, as the authors of the letter go through. Teaching those same things across all the land is a statement, or a thousand statements. Organizing our practical affairs so that we can maintain the principles of equity and justice is a statement. Dispensing unparalleled financial help to students who cannot afford even a moderate tuition is a statement. Helping private and public schools across the country lift their primary and secondary students out of a sea of disadvantages with excellent instruction, curricula, and the civic principles of freedom and equality. Without any recompense to the college, that's a statement. All of these are statements, uh, all these statements are acts, deeds that speak, undertaken and perpetuated how every day, all the time, Everything the college does through its work is not that of an activist or an agitator is for a the moral and intellectual uplift of all. The authors of the letter go on to say there is a kind of virtue that is cheap. It consists of jumping on cost-free bandwagons of public feeling, perhaps even deeply justified public feeling, and winning approval by espousing the right opinion. No one who wishes the college, Hillsdale, to issue statements is assumed to be a party to such behavior, but the fact that very real racial problems are now being cynically exploited for profit, gain, and public favor by some organizations and, in peop- and people is impossible to overlook. It is a scandal and a shame that compounds our ills and impedes their correction. Hillsdale College, by contrast, will continue to do the work of education and the great principles that are second only to divine grace, the solution to the grave ills that beset our times. Bravo, Hillsdale College. Hold fast and set an example for others who at present will not. This is Dan Proft. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. And sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, listen up, cheeseheads. What do you think about this? Brett Favre compared Colin Kaepernick to the late Pat Tillman over the weekend, telling TMZ Sports that Kaepernick's willingness to sacrifice his NFL career to fight for social justice felt reminiscent of Tillman's sacrifice for his country. I can only think of, right off the top of my head, Pat Tillman's another guy who did something similar, and we regard him as a hero, said Farvera. So I'd assume that hero status will be stamped with Kaepernick as well. What do you say to that, cheeseheads? It's not easy for a guy his age, yes, Farv continued, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, to stop something you've always dreamed of doing and put it on hold, maybe forever, for something you believe in. I think from a football sense, I can't imagine him being that far out of shape or that far out of touch with football that he doesn't deserve a shot. He's still young and he hasn't been in several years, so there's no reason to think that he lost much of a step. Well, the issue of being uh, desirable as an athlete is not just one of ability, is it? I mean, I'm not comparing him to 
football players who've committed criminal acts, but you know your character and the baggage you bring to a particular team, Favre would understand, one would think, could have an impact, and it's something that the front office of a football team or any other professional sports team might want to consider. Comparing him to Pat Tillman, a guy who wears socks that feature cops as pigs and who otherwise is famous for what uh, – taking a a nod from his BLM rapper girlfriend to kneel in protestation of the American flag and protestation of America. This is the same thing as dying in service to your country, as Pat Tillman did. Whoo, boy. The flip side of Brett Favre, somebody who is, uh, you know, sort of a virtue-signaling addled hack who has not thought through these issues, maybe doesn't have the capacity to, the opposite of that is Jason Whitlock. Now, while I don't always agree with Jason Whitlock, the sports writer, he is an independent thinker, so he always says a point to what he says that is worth contemplating. Jobs over gestures, Whitlock writes at Outkick.com. Athletes must make real demands. I don't trust athletes and celebrities to fix the criminal justice system, community policing, or other problems well outside their area of expertise. That's a good start. I'm a very simple man. When I have a back problem, I call a chiropractor, not a veterinarian. When I have the itch to gamble, drink, and flirt with debauchery, I fly to Vegas, not Salt Lake City. We're making a mistake allowing athletes and celebrity influencers to set the agenda for the kind of reform and change we want to see in America. Professional athletes and Hollywood elites answer directly to their corporate overlords. Indeed, they do. And as J.D. Vance pointed out on the Tucker Carlson show recently, it is corporate America that is in the business of dividing America. Going back to Whitlock, they've lived inside an elitist bubble since they were teenagers, and they don't care to know what they don't know. Absolutely. What Whitlock argues is what LeBron James and Collar Kaepernick and all the other social justice reformers can do to legitimize their national anthem kneeling and their I can't breathe T-shirts and virtue signaling tweets demand Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, etc. bring a significant portion of their manufacturing jobs back to America. Jason Whitlock making sense. Brett Favre just virtue signaling with the mob. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts and program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Attorney General Barr gave a wide-ranging interview to uh, Fox Business's Maria Bartiromo over the weekend. A lot of topics covered, including um, updating on the Durham report. I mean, there's not a lot new there, just sort of a restatement of things Barr has said previously. But on China, he was more specific and uh, more aggressive than he's been in the past, talking about the threat that China poses to this uh, experiment in representative Republican form of government we have ongoing, specifically about intellectual property theft, but also prospectively about a topic we've discussed on this show before, which is control of the 5G platform and how much leverage China would have if the platform by which U.S. manufacturing operates was a Chinese product. They've stolen our intellectual property. When they steal our our secrets about future technology, they're stealing the future of the American people. If they start leading in some of these fundamental foundational technologies like 5G, which will be the platform of much of our future manufacturing 
in the United States. They will have tremendous leverage over the United States. If all our industrial practices and our manufacturing practices are built on a platform that they dominate, they will have ultimate leverage over the West. So uh, I think this is, a, uh, this is a competition for the future. They haven't been competing fairly, and the president has confronted this when no one else has. And the American business community has been a big part of the problem because they're willing, ultimately, many of them, to sacrifice the long-term viability of their com companies for short-term profit so they can get their stock options and move into the Gulf Resort. That's what's driving some of this. They're not taking the long-term view and the national view, the American, of, of maintaining the American strength. And uh, Barr went on to say he believes that the West needs to pick a horse or a couple of horses, meaning Nokia or Ericsson, when it comes to the development of the 5G network, so you're not beholden to Huawei. But I thought his comments, particularly the direction of the American business community, were really interesting because he contrasted the American business community of today to the American business community of World War II and, and essentially said if the American business community had taken the position in World War II that uh, they're taking today with respect to short-term interests, then we'd be speaking German today. And he doesn't want us speaking Chinese going forward. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good to be with you. You know, not to get like super technical for folks, but people hear 5G and I'm not sure a lot of us understand what it means. And they go, well, what's the difference? 5G, 4G, it's just one number, but... I mean, it's literally the difference between a calculator and a, an Apple computer. Two things. One is you can push so much more data through the pipes, exponentially more data. And the other thing is, is you can move, move computing power to the data. You don't have to take the data back to the computer. And these are really revolutionary changes. And the challenge with China is twofold. One is the government has a law that says anything that travels through Chinese businesses any of that information, any of that intellectual property, essentially the Chinese government has access to that. And that's coupled with the second problem, which is the Chinese are really working on artificial intelligence and quantum computing because those are the things you need to break anything that's encrypted. So it doesn't matter how much data you have on the net that's encrypted. The Chinese will suck it all up like a Hoover vacuum and eventually they'll figure out how to crack it and exploit it and use it and manipulate systems and information. This is really a national security challenge. There's no question about that. If it's challenging as a German fleet sailing up to New York Harbor. And, and so uh, do you agree with Barr that even though this is not his decision to make, which he conceded, that the West should in some form or fashion, whether through uh, encouraging private investment or maybe something for, more formal by the government, should be picking horses in this race and, and supporting Nokia and or Ericsson as the most viable alternatives, given China's got $100 billion behind Huawei in the development of their 5G? Well, you know, the flip side to we don't want China to do this is we need solutions that are sustainable over time, that are cutting edge technology, that enable innovation, that are cost effective. Those are largely when you ask for those kinds of things, those are private sector solutions. And so I think we're all looking at some kind of public-private partnership. There might be some government investment. There might be government creating a framework where the free market solutions can compete fairly 
it might be international in perspective. I'm sure it will be where democracies will gather together and look for free market alternatives. You know, we've already seen innovation and companies coming up with different things. We've got companies bringing up, for example, virtual 5G networks, things that didn't even exist a couple of months ago. I actually think the innovation has skyrocketed since this, this competition was announced. And I think in short order, we'll find that Huawei isn't the best, cheapest, most cost-effective, most technically best solution. And I think the, the West will outcompete. Uh, I wanted to play you a clip from John Bolton's interview with Martha Raddatz last night, where he characterizes his view on where America stands vis-a-vis the world after three years of President Trump. Do you think U.S. national security is stronger or weaker because of President Trump? I think we're in a weaker position around the world. I think we have given up leadership in a wide variety of areas. I saw the Trump administration as a chance to correct it. And we corrected precious little. How do you respond to that on the substance of the uh, policy choices the Trump administration has had and their effect on America's standing in the world? Yeah, I mean, this for me is an easy one because I've been commenting on this, you know, and tracking this for three years, you know, long before there was a book or comments and everything else. And, and what I've always said is, you know, I've never focused so much on how the sausage got ground, but really on what's the substance of policy, not the president's suites or anything else. And substantively, it's really hard to argue anything other than we're not way better off than we were four years ago. Iran is deeply contained. Russia is contained. China's challenged like it's never been before. Everybody admits that. North Korea has largely been checkmated. The transnational Islamist terrorist threat is way down. And as much as people complain about the U.S., you know, then they ignore people that really are stepping up to Trump's leadership. We, we talked the other day about U.S.-India. You know, India has never been closer to the United States, never been a stronger partnership in dealing with China. And all that happened because of the president. I just think the argument that somehow we've lost ground under this president in terms of protecting U.S. vital interests, that's just, you can't rationally make that argument. Uh, on another front, uh, Bolton in his book talks about U.S. policy aimed at removing Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro and uh, blames Trump for the failure to do so. Mary Anastasio O'Grady has a a pretty good piece in the Wall Street Journal tackling that and suggests that what really was the problem there was a a colossal intelligence failure, and Bolton doesn't want to talk about that. You have to read between the lines. He wants to lay the blame at the, the front steps of President Trump's Oval Office, but it was a breakdown in intelligence there and understanding what the ground provided with respect to Maduro, not so much Trump's fault uh, with respect to a mess, obviously, he inherited from Obama. You know, and again, I go back to look at the fundamentals. Venezuela, not really a vital interest for the United States, not a big deal. What we really don't want is to not have a mess in Venezuela, destabilize the region. You know, and we also want to support the aspirations of freedom of Venezuelan people. The president's done that consistently. You know, I think his strategy of not getting sucked into the quagmire I think that's the right strategy. And, yeah, I mean, the, the upshot is, is the opposition hasn't shown the capacity to really rise up to the challenge. It would have been ridiculous for the United States to step in deeper, which I think many people had advocated for. I, I think we actually got Venezuela right. And, and, and specifically, I mean, that, that's where she's suggesting there was the intelligence failure in overestimating the capacity of Guaido and the opposition. Yeah, and, and I think by taking a cautious approach, you know, not essentially jumping in with two feet, I think that was right. And we've seen the consequences of that before when the United States steps into a situation when it doesn't really know what's going on on the ground and tries to just fix everything. And it's a lot messier in places like Venezuela where it is not a vital U.S. interest. You know, most of these, I, I got to tell you, I haven't, haven't read the book and haven't listened to a lot of the interviews, but you know, when people like you raise these issues, on the policy level, I just kind of blink and I go, 
you know, it sounds like the president was the guy that had the right answers. Yeah, it does. I, I agree with you. That's why it's uh, the the whole thing is rather curious. Uh, one one uh, going just going back to China for a moment, since there's um, casualties in conflict between the Chinese and the Indians. Should we be doing more to stand with our Indian allies against the Chinese? Well, I think it's really more up to India to kind of raise the level of the partnership with the United States. I mean, the Indians have always been reluctant or, or reticent, whatever the right word is, to make it look like they have to get the United States to have their back to stand up to China. I think they're right. They're perfectly capable of standing up to China on the border. And I see this growing in India, the recognition that the India's future security is in a partnership with the United States. And I think the more the Indians trump that, the better it is for them and, and, frankly, the better it is for us. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for your insights, as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for such great questions. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So I'm an investor in a company called Plenty, which uh, is uh, in the vertical farming space, an indoor farming space, the ability to uh, be as productive, growing produce in uh, much smaller footprints than your traditional farm. And so, of course, uh, agriculture and technology are inextricably linked. But I'm not sure I'm ready. I remember reading about this, I don't know, five or six years ago about some Dutch scientist who had spent like uh, half a million bucks to create the first synthetic burger. And I'm not sure I'm ready for that, mostly because of taste, not that I'm particularly ideological about uh, the sourcing of my burger. But uh, a new book by Chase Purdy suggests that uh, We're on the cusp of uh, that future arriving where I may be uh, able to have that synthetic burger and not tell the difference from the traditional one is that good public policy. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Chase Purdy. He's a New York-based journalist, most recently at Quartz and Politico, national fellow at New America, and author of the just-released book, Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. Chase, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know this has been afoot for at least several years, as I was describing at the outset here. Give us a, the state of play with the synthetic burger and uh, and the number of uh, cows' lives that may be saved, maybe borrowed from the Chick-fil-A cow for the marketing on this. Sure. Well, first, I think it's interesting that you choose to call it synthetic burger. Certainly, that's one name that's thrown around. There are many names that this can be called. I opt for cultured meat. The man who's at the center of the book that I wrote would just call it meat. And that kind of is reflective of what it actually is and how it's made. I mean, this is obviously a complex process, as you can imagine, but it can be described pretty simply in that cultured meat is just when you take an animal cell and you grow that cell into fat tissue and into muscle tissue. You put those two things together and you have what is in a molecular and a nutritional level, real meat. Right now, in terms of state of play, we are uh, able to make, um, or these companies are able to make really sort of basic meat products, such as ground beef, ground chicken, 
chicken nuggets, chicken tenders, meatballs, and things like that. Like a more complex steak is still a little ways out, but these products are ready. They're just waiting for a regulatory agency like the USDA and FDA to give the green light to begin serving it. And it'll probably first appear in a restaurant when it does come out. And and what is uh, the regulatory holdup? I mean, is it just the process of going through the approval or is there something or some things that are particularly controversial or in dispute uh, about the nature of this product? Nothing controversial. It's more just, you know, when you think of the way that we produce a lot of our food today, and particularly or how we regulate our meat, this process requires something entirely different from what we're used to. The government's used to sending sort of food safety inspectors out to meatpacking plants to test for pathogens and to make sure that line feeds are going at the right pace. And this is totally different. This process basically is growing meat inside plants that look very much kind of like big beer plants. There's big beer vats is where a lot of this is taking place. You can imagine that just takes building a new regulatory and oversight framework. And that takes time. That takes collecting information and lifecycle analyses and data from all the companies that are rushing to get this out as soon as they can. Have you tasted these uh, new meats yourself? <laughs> yes, I have. And it was interesting. The first time I tasted it, it was sort of a foie gras, which I never grew up eating. I'm not used to eating. And that didn't really impress me much, although mm-hmm. it did taste fine, I guess. You know, it wasn't until, um, you know, they started sort of providing chicken tenders and chicken salad and fried chicken and meatballs that was like, that's never started really getting interesting for me. The chicken tender in particular, you know, not only is sort of like, you know, you mentioned the taste is what you're interested in. One of the first things I would do when I'd get a hold of one of these things is sort of kind of just actually physically rip it apart to see what it looks like on the inside. Yeah. And if you can imagine when you cut into a normal chicken breast, it's kind of has that stringy texture. Well, it turns out it's really hard to get cells to grow that way. But um, the company had basically nailed that. So whenever I pulled apart chicken tender, it was, I mean, I, the way I describe it is that it was a humbling experience. But I mean, in terms of mouthfeel and taste and everything, I mean, these are right there with the real thing. Really? And I, mean, it's, I order off the kids' menu, too, so I'm glad to know that uh, chicken tenders uh, <laughs> <laughs> passes muster. And so part of the, the arguments that I've seen on this topic, though, and, and this coming from the left, is that um, this is actually not eco-friendly because uh, while it may reduce uh, the methane emitted from cows, it releases more CO2, the labs that are producing these meats. No, there's no research that shows that. Every bit of research that's happened so far on this, every sort of um, publicly available life cycle analyses of this process shows that it uses less land, less water, less energy. It emits less CO2 and methane into the atmosphere than sort of conventional agriculture. Um, well, I mean, just, just, just a point of order on it. I mean, I'm not arguing it. I'm just noting that there was a study published last February in the journal Frontiers for Sustainable Food Systems that argued just what I suggested. But, but you're saying I that, mean, I think that's, that there been refuted, are, that's been refuted. Yeah, the bulk of the science behind this um, says otherwise. Um, and, but, you know, that actually, whether you attach your uh, viewpoint to that study or to other studies, um, I sort of state pretty clearly in the book is that the companies who are making this have a long way to go in order to be more transparent about their processes. We're not going to know the exact 
numbers um, until one of the companies releases a life cycle analysis. Um, but you know, every sort of academic and researcher who is out there studying this space, as far as I'm aware of, um, and all the studies that I've looked at overwhelmingly show that this would be um, using less land, water, energy, and emit fewer greenhouse gas emissions than the conventional agriculture. What about uh, uh, the uh, the price point? I mean, in terms of the market viability of this product versus traditional meat. Right. No, it's a really interesting question, and one that um, you know, back in 2013 when this was first introduced, it was something 1.2 million dollars per pound. Uh, of <laughs> so it's obviously it's a little pricey a, for a, a cookout. Out of our price. Yeah. Range. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and I don't want to right. subsidize this, otherwise Elon Musk is going to get into this business. So anyway, right. So I mean, I think that the um, it's still expensive right now. I would say if you look at some of the, the most uh, the companies that are at the at the forefront of this, probably looking at about seven hundred to twelve hundred dollars a pound. Still a lot, but think about how much that has plummeted since twenty thirteen. In a seven-year time span, you've seen it go from 1.2 million to just hovering around $1,000 per pound, and that is before any company ever built um, a production facility. And you have five companies in the world now that are building out their first pilot production facilities, which will allow for them to scale up their production in a way that will only further decrease the price point. How soon will it be until we get to a point that's comparable to like meat you'd find in the supermarket? That's kind of to be determined. I imagine we're still a couple of years out from that. But you can imagine at the, um, at the price that has dropped in seven years that that will likely continue. He is Chase Purdy, New York-based journalist, most recently at Quartz and Politico, National Fellow at New America. The book, Billion Dollar Burger, Inside Big Tech's Race for the Future of Food. Very interesting stuff. Chase Purdy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Don't you tell me you're full, just eat it. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I mentioned this on Friday, but... um, it uh, bears repeating, particularly after the violence, not just in Chicago, but particularly in Chicago over this weekend. Latest count, 102 shot, 14 dead. That is more people shot in Chicago this weekend than the weekend of May 30th and 31st, uh, where you had a Sunday, May 31st. That was the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years. And there's violence in, in Chaz or Chop in the middle of Seattle and elsewhere as well. But uh, the uh, point I'm referencing is Holman Jenkins's column from the Wall Street Journal last week, where he reminds us to have some perspective. Starting in the 1980s, researchers identified 880 census tracts out of a total of 56,000 in the United States where social order made a law-abiding life difficult. That's about 2 million people, including many who are not black, who lived in such places in 2005. And I would suggest that proportion hasn't changed very much in the intervening 15 years. He goes on to say, except in the media and popular culture, and perhaps in the minds of some police officers, 
they hardly represent the experience of 41 million African-Americans. And that's true in Chicago as well, uh, a, a city that the Wall Street Journal termed Murder City USA last week, unfortunately, but not inaccurately. And uh, it's concentrated violent crime in a few neighborhoods that has persisted for generations. But it's not necessarily it, it, it's not at all, actually, the experience of the great distribution of 41 million black Americans around the country or Latino Americans around the country, particular census tracts or white Americans around the country, 880 census tracts out of 56,000. And so what is the appeal to be made in addition to the rule of law and order on behalf of the law abiding in these neighborhoods in big cities where there is a disproportionate share of the violent crime. Well, uh, Ian Rowe makes an argument in the Wall Street Journal this weekend, and that's where I want to pick it up with our our guest, James Antle. He is the political editor for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com, and he writes about this in part as well. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Uh, you uh, write in the Washington Examiner about uh, the pitch that the Trump camp- campaign believes it can make to black Americans to increase Trump's share of the black vote come November 3rd. And it seems to me that uh, this that the pitch has to be uh, textured a bit. One is a pitch to a disproportionate uh, population of black Americans in these violent neighborhoods that I'm describing, like in Chicago. And another is to the much greater swath of black Americans who are middle and upper middle class who have, uh, you know, sort of very different, uh, a very different rank order priority of concerns like many other Americans. I think that's right. So the Trump campaign believes that they can make a pitch to middle class and upper middle class blacks uh, that will focus on growing the economy and the, the economic recovery that they think that they're going to be able to uh, start. We're seeing some signs of maybe beginning uh, following the coronavirus lockdown. So they, they've been planning on running on record low African-American unemployment. Uh, you know, the coronavirus situation sort of put an end to that. But still, uh, you know, we did see an increase in, in black uh, employment, uh, you know, black job gains uh, in, in the last jobs report, uh, which posted a pretty hefty jobs gain for the country overall. So that's part of their pitch to more affluent blacks. Uh, They also believe there are a lot of people living in in, in some of these communities that are are racked by violence who don't feel represented uh, by people who only uh, defend protesters and rioters and looters who need public safety, want public safety, want want things like school choice and, and a strong law enforcement presence in their communities uh, to to protect their children, to protect their families, and that they don't necessarily feel represented by the Democratic campaign pitch. So those are a couple of the messages that the Trump campaign has targeted uh, with black voters. Uh, When we come back, I want to ask how important it is that Trump gets something done uh, in the area of police reform. Tim Scott's legislation in the Senate or some approximation of it in terms of making an appeal across the socioeconomic spectrum to black Americans. More with James Antle, political editor for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com, right after this.
good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with James Antle. He's the political editor for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. And we're talking about sort of the multifaceted pitch that uh, the Trump campaign is going to make to black Americans to try to grow President Trump's support from uh, black Amer- the, black, the, 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 the black community in this country on November 3rd. We're talking about um, uh, those that have more immediate physical security concerns in urban centers versus those that are more upperly mobile and uh, financially independent in the suburbs and and elsewhere, and and also obviously in the big cities. Um, And I wonder across the spectrum, though, an issue that perhaps unites black Americans is the need for rethinking policing, some police reforms that uh, prevent or install additional accountability mechanisms to try to prevent something like what happened from George Floyd to ever happening again. And and, you know, obviously the Tim Scott legislation in the Senate is the Republican plan. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have a very different idea about what police reform should look like. How important is it for Trump to get something done uh, on the area of police reform, something signed into law prior to November if he's going to make a compelling pitch? I think it's very important. And obviously, if he has some success on it, if they can sign something like Uh, the Tim Scott legislation into law. It it will augment the pitch that he's already making on criminal justice reform and prison reform. Uh, But this is clearly an issue that's important to a lot of black voters, uh, a lot of people who are outraged by what happened to George Floyd. So to do something that establishes some credibility on that issue uh, obviously would be very politically beneficial to the president. I think, you know, aside from the specific policy details that are, that are different between the Republican and Democratic approaches. There, there's one overarching theme uh, that I think does really differentiate them, and that's uh, the Democrats want to approach this as a, a systemic racism issue, and Republicans uh, want to approach it from the perspective that this is a bad apples within police departments issue. And that goes a long war, not just in terms of how they frame it, but it goes a long way in terms of what types of things each reform effort wants to do and, and focus on. Well, right. And, and so that creates a, a real issue because you're starting from fundamentally different places. So how do you right. get any sort of agreement on legislation that could pass both chambers and be sent to the president's desk? That's right. Uh, and even just using the, the phrase systemic racism is, is often a sort of a prerequisite for getting Democratic support, whereas obviously the, the president uh, you know, views these as isolated examples within police departments. So better training, uh, establishing best practices, making it easier to report to different departments uh, what has happened to, to problem officers so they don't end up rehiring people who have been punished uh, in other departments and have had a lot of violent incidents. Uh, That's sort of where Trump and Tim Scott and the Republicans are focused on. Uh, The Democrats think that more structural changes are required. Uh, They haven't quite gone the defund the police route, but certainly they're influenced by activists who who favor that sort of thing. Uh, I do think some kind of compromise will, will Uh, will happen because I think both sides 
want legislation to be signed into law, uh, but it's going to be difficult. Uh, what, what about um, uh, Trump's use of surrogates and uh, starting to elevate and amplify other voices uh, to perhaps drive a conversation that he may not be best equipped to drive? And I mentioned um, before the break this uh, op-ed in The Wall Street Journal from Ian Rowe, uh, who is actually a friend of mine, and he runs a network of public charter schools in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. He writes in the journal, Our mission has been to empower the students we educate, most of whom are black or Hispanic from low-income homes, to become whatever they want to be, regardless of the actions of any quote-unquote oppressive majority. He says the danger of the moment, the moment we're in, is that the next generation of Americans, black and white, might grow up believing the entire destiny of one race rests in the hands of another, which must renounce its privilege before any progress can be made. The potential damage is that young people are robbed of their sense of personal agency, the belief and ability they can control their own destiny. Uh, this is perhaps a bit of an intellectual discussion, but it has real practical consequences. And if, if Trump can't drive it, then maybe it's time to enlist Ian Rowe and, uh, uh, and, and, and other black intellectuals, Glenn Lowry at Brown, Bob Woodson, uh, uh, Andre Archie at Colorado State University, have them drive this conversation. It can't just be the president alone. I think that's right, and that's one of the reasons why they've done the, the Black Voices for Trump uh, board, and they've done their, their talks uh, online, the videos that have gotten nearly uh, 12 million views. Uh, they've made a lot of use of Black surrogates. Now, a lot of them are celebrities of, of some type. I mean, we've seen uh, former NFL player Herschel Walker, right. uh, social media personalities like Diamond and Silk. Uh, they haven't made as much use of, of conservative black intellectuals. There are some exceptions. I mean, Carol Swain uh, is is a prominent member of their of the Black Voices for Trump. Uh, I think clearly some of, of that is needed. Uh, there needs to be a, a little bit more focus on you know they're they're running on school choice and they're running on charter schools, to have people who've been involved in these projects uh, and can explain the real-world impact uh, that it can have in these communities, uh, having them be out there and, and more vocal would certainly be helpful. What is uh, the Trump campaign's target in terms of percentage of black vote? I, what, I think he got 6% last time. What, what do they realistically think they can do if they, if they do this, uh, uh, this, this persuasion effort just right? He got 8% last 8%, time. I think, I, I think what they uh, are hoping to do uh, is, is break into the double digits. Uh, I think they, and, and in addition to maybe getting about 12% nationally, uh, it matters what states, obviously, this is distributed in. Uh, we saw in some competitive races in 2018, which is not a good year for Republicans, uh, there were some competitive races where uh, you had black men voting in the, in the mid-teens for Republican candidates and men appear to be uh, reverting back to some of their pre-Barack Obama voting habits of being a little bit more Republican than black women. And, and I, I think so. They're not necessarily expecting, you know, 40, 50 percent, but they do think that if they can get into the 12, 15 percent range, especially in some of the swing states, some of these battleground states, uh, which will really decide the election, uh, that, that that is positive momentum for them and will be very helpful to them in, the, in November. He is James Antle, political editor for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care.
the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We talked about uh, a weekend violence in Chicago in the first hour of the program. Well, about 90 miles northwest of Chicago is Rockford, Illinois, which uh, I'm sure most people have heard of. And uh, Rockford, Illinois, was uh, a vibrant manufacturing community in the 80s. But when its manufacturing base left, a lot of opportunity did. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Rockford has a, has a mid-sized urban center has a violent crime problem uh, like Chicago does, not quite on the scale, but it's got a violent crime problem. Problem, And the police chief there, Dan O'Shea, said something last month that hadn't bubbled up to the surface until last week when he was uh, criticized for what he had said as it became known to the larger public. Here's what Chief uh, Police Chief Dan O'Shea, police chief in Rockford, said about uh, violent crime and the criminals who commit the crimes. The, the 16 and 17 year olds that run around shooting each other, they're, we're not wasting our time trying to save them. They're lost. We're trying to focus on the, you know, four, three, four, five year olds all the way up through maybe 12, 13, where we have a chance at saving them uh, and changing their lives and changing the direction they're going in their life. And we're only a part of it. They need family, they need relatives, they need, you know, friends that will keep them on that path as well. Uh, 17 year olds that go around committing murders uh, and shooting at people. I, I, sorry, off to prison you go. I got nothing for you. Uh, your family failed you at, up to this point, and there's nothing we can do for you. Mm. Well, that, that uh, came across as harsh to some, but uh, is there something inaccurate about it? What do you do with a 17- or 18-year-old that shoots somebody or somebody's, that murders somebody or somebody's? I, there's redemption is possible for anyone and everyone. But uh, if you commit a murder or you shoot somebody, obviously your redemption is going to be years in the making, perhaps decades, and appropriately so. Uh, and uh, Dan O'Shea, uh, reacting to the criticism the other day, uh, is not apologizing. When someone commits a violent crime in this city, they need to be held accountable. And if they're convicted through the state's attorney's office, through the judicial system, they need to go to the Department of Corrections. That's what I meant. I can't make it any clearer. How it came out um, might not have been the best way to present it to them, but I won't apologize for my words. I meant what I was saying. Violent criminals need to be removed from this city. I will never come off of that. And uh, that goes for every city, doesn't it? Isn't that what the law-abiding want? We've talked over and over again about what a small percentage of the population, even in the highest crime areas that uh, violent criminals represent, they need to be removed until they are violent no longer. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe uh, it's just those terms, the sort of the two-by-four, the rhetorical two-by-four that uh, Chief O'Shea swung that uh, is required to wake some people up to that reality especially social justice politicians. This is Dan Proff. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and... uh... Over the weekend, things got violent in uh, Chaz slash Chop, the independent nation formed in the heart of Seattle that we discussed uh, extensively last week. Andy No, writing in the New York Post. You remember Andy No? He's the journalist, friend of the show, journalist who got beaten up by Antifa in Portland, almost killed. He's uh, still out there. He reported the New York Post. On Saturday morning, a shooting erupted that left at least one person dead and another injured near a border checkpoint, border checkpoint. Just that phrase used in conjunction with an American city is remarkable. He goes on, police were reportedly met with resistance when they tried to get to the victims, who apparently were then taken in private cars to the hospital. Cops made it into the zone to gather shell casings and evidence as police in riot gear stood at the border. On Thursday, police arrested Robert James after he left Chaz, He's accused of sexually assaulting a deaf woman who was lured inside a tent. The same day, a former city council candidate, Isaiah Willoughby, was arrested on suspicion of starting the arson attack on the East Precinct June 12th. The East Precinct that was abandoned by police on the order of Mayor Jenny Durkin, who characterizes everything going on in Chaz as uh, a block party. The summer of love, it could be. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, and speaking of the summer of love, uh, Seattle took a page out of uh, Evergreen State University and had a blackout day or part of a day where no non-black people were allowed to go into a particular area of the autonomous zone, as was captured by one enterprising civilian reporter. How long's the uh, blackout going for? Well, 8 p.m. Okay, so I have to wait till 8, basically? Uh, what? you're welcome to, like, hang out in the perimeter area. Well, the thing is, I'm, I'm half Italian, half Colombian, so do I get a pass to get in there, or? Well, this space is right now held for just black folks. Oh, just black, okay, yeah. so full black, you're saying? Um, if you have black ancestry, or if you, um, if you have experienced oppression because you are black, then you can enter this space. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Nothing like a white girl telling you you can enter a particular space reserved for black people if you're a black person who has uh, suffered oppression. By the way, uh, let me just make sure I'm understanding here. So the civil rights movement was about desegregation and the uh, Black Lives Matter slash Antifa slash whoever else is part of the autonomous nation of Chaz is now about resegregation a la what Brett Weinstein couldn't believe what was happening on the campus of Evergreen State University and was throttled, really drummed out of Evergreen State University by the students for daring to say, no, I'm not going to leave campus because I'm a white person. I don't believe in segregating the races. For more on uh, this, what's happening in Chaz slash CHOP slash the insane asylum inside Seattle. We're pleased to be joined by Bowen Zhao, who is a New York-based reporter at the Epoch Times, covering national security, human trafficking, and U.S. politics. Bowen, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Well, I uh, I read your piece in the Epoch Times, your first-person account, but uh, 
But give it to us. Uh, you heard what Andy No wrote. You've heard an example of what people are witnessing on the ground there. What is it that you witnessed? I was on the ground in chance on chop for maybe four or five days. On the surface, it appears to be um, relatively peaceful. But uh, during the night is when, you know, the fogs come out, the police state kind of vibe comes out. Actually, just today, the police announced that there was a second shooting inside this zone. Uh, one person was reportedly uh, wounded with a gunshot wound and is now in hospital. Right, and uh, you write about uh, some of the uh, the messages that you see when you meander through Chaz. Uh, End America uh, is one. Uh, shoplift your future back. That's a particularly interesting one. Um, and and uh, you also had the opportunity, I understand it, to uh, interact with the uh, warlord in charge of Chaz, ostensibly to the extent anybody is, this rapper named Raz Simone. Uh, what does uh, Raz Simone have to say about uh, the future vision for this uh, autonomous zone, this independent nation inside Seattle? Right. So I managed to speak to Raz, the so-called warlord of Chaz. Uh, he denied to me that he was a warlord, but there's been numerous videos on social media that show him, you know, bullying and uh, physically intimidating other occupants inside Chaz. He also, so when I was interviewing him, he was open carrying with a pistol. And uh, when I asked him, you know, what is the reason he carries his gun, he said it was just for self-defense purposes, mm -hmm. he claims. But it has been reported that during the occupation of the zone, Raz was uh, carrying an AK-47 on his shoulder and a pistol on his hip. He reportedly instructed, you know, other people to guard the barricades. So make that what you will. Well, right. And, and again, as long as he's doing so lawfully under actually Washington state law, not uh, Chaz law. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with it other than if he's misrepresenting exactly how Chaz operates as you know, it's apparently the uh, gun free zone doesn't apply to Chaz. But but I mean, uh, with your interaction with him, I mean, did you get any sense of what the what the plan is here, what they're trying to accomplish? Do they intend on continuing to occupy the uh, Seattle police's East Precinct or is that or is there some duration to this? You know, give us a some texture to what Raz Simone's thinking is. So he claimed that they originally never intended to take over the police station. But, you know, reports and videos tell otherwise. So there's a, they have a list of demands that they want, uh, they hope to be met. You know, some of these demands include, uh, you know, abolishing the entire Seattle Police Department, as well as, as, well as its criminal justice apparatus, Another demand is, you know, reparations for victims of police brutality. But Chaz maintains that um, during the interview that he, everything was intended to be peaceful. And, and, and what's the reaction from, uh, you know, those uh, citizens of Chaz to the violence over the weekend? 
So I actually interviewed uh, a local business owner who's located just outside the zone. Uh, one night, his store was broken into. Uh, you know, the neighbors called uh, the store, telling them someone was trying to break in. Uh, so they, the store owner and his son, so I spoke to the son, they entered the store and managed to detain the suspect. Um, they called 911, they called police multiple times, but no one showed up. So they were sitting inside their store, you know, holding this alleged thief. Uh, and then suddenly a mob of Chaz members swarmed their store as well. Some of them were demanding they release the, the suspect. There was some confusion, um, but there were also some Chaz occupants uh, protecting the store. But anyway, when I was talking to the store owner's son, he was just, you know, devastated that they called the police again and again, but no one showed up. And and so what ended up? Uh, yeah, and, and so what? Yeah, so go. the suspect they let him go, right? They let him go. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, he was just trying to shoplift his future back, as the signs say. Uh, what uh, what right. what's, your, what's your sense of of the uh, the residents who live inside the autonomous zone and other business owners inside the autonomous zone? Are they um, supportive of this, or would they like the civilian political authorities and the Seattle police to restore control of this area of Seattle? So I would say it's a mixed bag. Uh, some of the business owners I spoke to, you know, they they want police. They want law and order restored in the zone. Uh, I spoke to some other local business owners. They actually support the zone. They support the the purpose behind it. Um, some residents actually want to move out of the zone, um, you know, due to the safety concerns, the violence, intimidation. Uh, yeah, not to mention the decline in property value, probably. Uh, he is Bowen Zhao. He's a New York-based reporter at the Epoch Times, covers national security, human trafficking, and U.S. politics. Bowen, thanks for your first-person account uh, inside Chaz. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Even as uh, Hollywood is today pulling cop shows that portray police in a positive light to comport with the times of expunging any positive images of police as an institution, in addition to uh, the expunging of history that the mob doesn't like, Addison Del Mastro goes the other way, which is why Addison Del Mastro's writings are always interesting to me. Uh, Addison DeMaster is the assistant editor and social media manager at the American Conservative dot com. He uh, supports copaganda in a different kind of way than you might think. Addison, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In your piece, you uh, specifically mention Adam 12, which I'm you know barely old enough to vaguely remember. 
and you're way too young to remember, by the way. But uh, there's certainly um, other cop shows that even if they portrayed cops in a textured way, you know, the disposition is generally to portray them favorably. And this is what offends the mob at present. But you suggest that Adam 12 may be good uh, as a replacement to certain police training videos. Yes, it was an idealistic version of police that doesn't necessarily reflect the complicated reality of police, particularly in the 60s. But it it, it is a, a model that police could try to more closely emulate. Yeah, right. Well, you know, when I was researching, I actually found an interview with one of the actors and he said that police departments actually did use episodes of Adam-12 as training videos back in the 60s and early 70s. So I had originally concluded my article by saying, well, they should take these propaganda shows and use them as training. So I had to go and amend the final line and say they should once again use them as training. <laughs> once again, they did. Okay, very interesting. And again, even in the more popular shows, and you mentioned some of them, I mean, Law and Order obviously has been running since the, I think the first part of the 20th century. But uh, The Wire and some of the shows that are more gritty, as well as some of the spoof shows like Police Squad or more, or Angie Tribeca or Brooklyn Nine Nine, the takeaway is still a relatively positive one, even if you're having some fun at the police's expense. But is that a bad thing? Should we be looking to uh, take Paw Patrol off the air as the, the mob currently is attempting to do? <laughs> the way I think about it with these show, particularly not the comedies, which is maybe a different thing, but these earnest cop shows that purport to be, you know, somewhat realistic. Um, and Dragnet, of course, is another great example. You know, I know this stuff because my parents used to make me watch it, so now I guess I'm glad about that. But some people just dismiss it as propaganda. And, and the reality is that police departments actually had sort of semi-formal influence over how these shows would portray them. They called it technical consultation and there was a relationship between the producers and the, and the cops so people shouldn't have any illusion that this is a documentary but it's also a promise it's also an ideal and i think if you throw that out as propaganda you're also throwing out a way to hold the police to their own standard well and there's propaganda that goes in the other direction too isn't there i mean you mentioned nwa's f the police I, I immediately thought of Ice-T's cop killer song that created so much controversy back in the day. You know, I mean, it's, it's that propaganda in a free society runs in a lot of different directions. Public enemy of my era, you know, 911 is a joke, those those sorts of things. Yeah, well, it's a big, complicated country, but uh, sometimes something that's simplistic and idealistic isn't always a bad thing. Right, yeah, but no, exactly, and it's it's a way to suggest what the idyllic environment would be, even though we know you don't have a delicate environment. It's, you know, separating the make-believe world of television or the movies from the real world. We used to be able to do that. We don't seem to be able to do so anymore. At least we're very fearful that the make-believe worlds of TV and the movies will have undue influence in the real world. Well, I'll agree with you on that. I wanted to get to your take on another piece that you wrote, too, with this more, more related to COVID. You talk about small business owners and you use sort of the backdrop of uh, uh, Gordon Ramsay's, I think, intolerable show called Kitchen Nightmares. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's for the eye of the beholder. But the important point you make is about small business owners who are getting hammered in the, the wake of the shutdowns, even as states are reopening in much the same way that many of them did, particularly in the restaurant business in 2008 during the Great Recession, maybe even more so this go around. And, uh, and and just, you know, the focus on that cohort of Americans 
who are, uh, you know, much talked about in the abstract, but perhaps not served in the in the concrete. Yeah, well, the thing about Titchen Nightmare is that it actually, obviously, he's Gordon Ramsay is British, and the British version of the show is actually more about how the business runs. The American version is more dramatic, but the American version is also more individualistic in the sense it takes this American tendency to conflate virtue with financial success, and I, I think that's a thread that runs through American history from the very beginning, and there's this implication that these business owners have failed and that if they don't straight, they deserve to go out of business. And maybe some of them do, but I took a look at some of the data from, from the different seasons of the show, and it turns out the businesses that were filmed in 2008, every single one permanently closed. And in every other year, a few of them survived. And the further away that we got from the pit of the recession, the higher the success rate became. So the, the big point there was that yeah, these were poor businesses, but if they happened to have the bad luck of hitting their bottom at the same time as the economy, they really, whereas in a better economy, a lot of poor to average businesses were able to soldier on. And so that economics, there's not a whole lot I think you can probably do about that, but what we can do is have more compassion for people who fail in the middle of a recession and try to understand the complexity of, of what's involved in running a business in a, in a bad time. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's an important point you make about respect for the productive risk-taking that uh, individuals are taking. You make the point that um, for the small business owner-operator, their work is their life. While this can redound to their benefit, it can also make failure much more crushing and complete. There's no life to keep free from the fallout. It's made and it's made worse by the fact that Americans have a scant script to explain failure when it occurs, even as every advisable individual choice was made. So, you know, I think there's there there needs to be a, a certain respect paid to that more than just, uh, you know, rhetorically as like this, as I said before, this this abstraction of a group. Yeah, right. I mean, everyone likes to valorize small business. One of my economics professors back in the day that everyone knows the line about how small business is the engine of job creation. And he said that's true, but it's also the engine of unemployment because something like 50% of businesses fail in the first year. Um, I might be off a few percent, but it's a very tough thing to do. And as a kid, before I understood economics or anything, watching Gordon Ramsay, you know, more than 10 years ago, it always seemed to me that the quote-unquote punishment was not commensurate with the crime, you know. You serve frozen chicken fingers and you be in debt for the rest of your life and your marriage falls apart. And I know that, you know, you can bail people out whose businesses fail or whatever. I don't know what the economic answer is, but it seems that that's just not, that's just not fair. Maybe life isn't fair, but, um, you know, I don't mind pointing that out. Yeah, well, it also, maybe it should suggest that we should... Uh advance policies consistent with the incentives of the small business owner operator. We should try to fly in formation rather than run interference. Maybe that's a, an important takeaway, too. He is Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor and social media manager for AmericanConservative.com. Addison, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. On uh, Friday, we talked about uh, Brandon Straka, the founder of the walkaway movement, hashtag walkaway, walkaway from the Democrat Party, banned by American Airlines for refusing to wear a mask on the flight, wear one of those surgical masks on the flight. Uh, he uh, documented that, provided some video documentation of what happened. And, of course, this is uh, the protocol that's been uh, adopted by all the major carriers in the era of COVID-19. Well, <laughs> oh, the ironies always abound in government, don't they? Uh, NPR reporting that the TSA withheld N95 masks from staff and exhibited, quote, gross mismanagement, unquote, in its response to the COVID-19 crisis, leaving employees and travelers, by extension, vulnerable during the most uh, urgent days of the pandemic. The Office of Special Counsel last late last week, an independent federal agency that handles whistleblower complaints, said it had found substantial likelihood of wrongdoing in the complaint, the whistleblower complaint, ordered Department of Homeland Security to open an investigation into TSA. So uh, all of the protocols for the plebes, the serfs, and none of the protocols for the government commissars. Isn't that just so appropriate for these times? For more on this topic and a few others, including the mob rewrite of history that's ongoing, pleased to be joined by James Bovard. He's a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, author of some 10 books, frequent contributor to The Hill, and contributing editor for American Conservative. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me back on the program. So how about uh, this uh, revelation about um, uh, TSA? Uh, So while we were forced to do COVID-19 theater, they were not even doing security theater. Well, this is typical for TSA. I mean, the the TSA is a a very secretive agency, and it's the TSA agents basically have blanket immunity to uh, sexually assault travelers. (laughs) Uh, And uh, TSA is also a very, uh, you know, as part of its secrecy, uh, TSA encourages people to file complaints if, if, uh, if they feel they've been abused. But TSA is not willing to disclose those complaints under a Freedom of Information Act request. But I did a story back when the uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, looking at the um, looking at uh, women who had complained on Twitter about TSA. I just you know I did a simple search uh, TSA in various parts of female anatomy, and oh my God, I hit a mother load. Yeah, well, and and in this case, you have uh, the call coming from inside the agency. TSA's federal security director, Jay Brainerd, uh, official in charge of transportation security in the state of Kansas, been with the agency for two decades, saying, according to this NPR report, we did not take adequate steps to make sure that we were not becoming carriers and spreaders of the virus ourselves. I believe absolutely that contributed to the spread of coronavirus. That is a rather uh, stark admission. Absolutely. And but uh, this is something that TSA, you know, TSA has been spreading all kinds of bad things for decades because uh, TSA's sanitation standards uh, have been abysmal. They're often non-existent. Uh, and there is a, you know, uh, people's interactions with TSA agents are basically presumed the TSA agent can go anywhere that they want with their hands, no matter where their hands have been before. So, I mean, that's a um, uh, that's a recipe for spreading covid uh, flu and a lot of other bad things. And and doesn't it also speak to why there is such distrust of government, uh, these, uh, you know, rules for me, but not for thee? It's not just with uh, elected officials. It's also with government agents uh, in so many agencies. 
Yeah, I mean, the uh, federal government is basically exempt from the Constitution. If you want to sue them, then uh, you need a lot of money and quite a few years, and you'll, and you'll probably fail anyhow. So there's, there are a small number of cases where people can make progress. Uh, if something's caught on videotape, then th- there can be an uproar. But by and large, the government uh, gets away with almost all of its abuses, and most government cover-ups succeed. It's an absolute myth to say the truth will out when you're dealing with a government agency. Well, and, and of course, uh, that uh, famous uh, sort of mystery shopping exercise uh, with TSA a couple years back where uh, they missed something on the order of 90 percent of illicit items that pass through the, uh, the their security checkpoints. Yeah, and uh, this is a pattern that goes back uh, at least 15 years. The agency has never been uh, that competent, and yet what they've tried to do is compensate by giving their agents more power and telling them to be much more aggressive with travelers. This works out very badly for women. Uh, it also works out badly for men sometimes. I've, uh, I've had some unpleasant dealings where I felt like I should have been wearing an um, iron-plated jock strap going through the uh, <laughs> checkpoint. Uh, that's vivid. Uh, when we come back with... <laughs> it wasn't too vivid. It was, you know, I was choosing my words. I, said, All right. I think I can go this far, but no further. No, I appreciate the PG uh, respect for our audience. Thank you. Uh, when we come back with James Bovard, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the mob's rewrite of history and the tearing down of statues as part of that. Uh, James Bovard, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, will have more with him right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And there has been a significant movement in the direction of uh, erasing history so that the Jacobin mobs can rewrite it as they see fit, what they like and excise what they don't like. Ulysses S. Grant statue torn down in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Ulysses S. Grant, who Frederick Douglass, freed slave Frederick Douglass, said, quote, to him more than to any other man, the Negro owes his enfranchisement, unquote. But that doesn't pass muster in 2020 America. Harper Lee and Mark Twain banned in the Duluth school districts. To Kill a Mockingbird and the Adventures of Huck Finn, gone from the curriculum in 20 schools in the Duluth, Minnesota school district because their content, the content of those classics, may make students feel humiliated or marginalized. Teddy Roosevelt on horseback, flanked by a Native American man and an African man, which has presided over the entrance to the American Museum of Natural History in New York since 1940. That's coming down. St. Louis as a city may need to be renamed which actually makes some sense if you take the position of the mob as King Louis IX was uh, instrumental in bringing the presumption of innocence to criminal proceedings in France. So, of course, that does not comport with the might-makes-right crowd of 2020 America. James Bovard rejoins us. He's the author of 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors, and a frequent contributor to The Hill and contributor for the American Conservative as well. And, James, um, you uh, have written about... uh, those who are bending a knee to the mob, including the Boy Scouts, or I guess as they're now called, the Scouts, which says a lot of what you need to know about the Scouts. But all of this going on, not just the Boy Scouts, but including them, this effort to expunge history and and write it anew in 2020 America. What is your uh, handle on how serious a matter this is? 
Well, it's sad to see the politicians and the media encouraging mob violence. Someone had a great line about where is this going to end, and uh, someone said, well, you know, you think of Harriet Tubman, who was famous for uh, helping with her shotgun, helping slaves escape with the Underground Railroad in the 1850s. Someone said that, that those statues are going to be toppled because Harriet Tubman never said uh, anything endorsing transgender rights. I mean, well, uh, again, uh, you go to the What We Believe page from Black Lives Matter, and there is as much about trans rights and uh, destruction of nuclear family as there is about black people in America and their their interests or opportunities. You know, that may not be much of a parody at this juncture. What about with respect to the Boy Scouts and their new merit badge? Well, I'm wondering if the Boy Scouts are going to mandate Scouts wearing, uh, you know, uh, ashes and sackcloth because uh, the Scouts are now mandating for Eagle that you've got to have a specific merit badge for diversity and inclusion. And as someone who was an Eagle Scout uh, when I was a teenager, mm. there were a number of things about the Boy Scouts which, looking back in uh, hindsight, kind of made me cringe a little bit. There was a lot more stress on obedience than I'd like. There were a lot more government officials put on pedestals. But there were also great things. It was get out in the woods, you know, go and get a bloody nose, and just to be able to overcome your physical comfort zone and to be out there exploring nature. I mean, that was a, a legacy that I got from the Boy Scouts, which continues to influence my life right now. I mean, I'm a hike leader for meetup groups, and that's something which I first did when I was in the Boy Scouts. But to see the vilification of the Boy Scouts and to see them kowtowing, it's not going to end well. And the whole idea of having a merit badge where you've got to prove that you support diversity and inclusion, I'm all in favor of tolerance. I mean, tolerance is a wonderful virtue, and that's something which I think the vast majority of Americans, at least until recently, would have endorsed or supported. But now there's a catechism that you've got to swear to, and the catechism changes every two weeks, and it's hard to keep up with the latest, you know, enforced dictates. Vilification and supplication, those turn out to be two sides of the same coin, don't they? As soon as you bend the knee, that is when they really pounce. If you are not able to or willing to stand and defend yourself, then that's when you're targeted. It seems to me those instances where individuals have refused to apologize uh, and uh, have the necessary backing to stand on their own two feet, that's where the mob goes away, just as uh, any bully does. I agree. And take a step back to the Boy Scouts. I mean, for a, a lot of years, the Boy Scouts covered up pedophiles who were abusing Scouts. That was a horrendous abuse, and it's something that the Scouts deserve to be condemned for. But what you've had instead is a lot of states have passed these laws which have abolished a statute of limitation for bringing lawsuits on that. So you have a lot of lawsuits that have basically no evidence, but they have an accusation. And because of that, the scouts are driven into bankruptcy. So um, I'm in favor of paying compensation. The scouts having to do that for people that were clearly victims. But if you abolish the statute of limitation, then you've basically... In a lot of, if not most cases, you've simply abolished any uh, standard of evidence. So There was a, a piece that uh, we discussed with a guest on Friday, uh, Libby Evans, uh, writing for the Post Millennial, talking about how the New York City school systems are um, teaching her 10-year-old son that he's a racist. And she made this a larger point about this, uh, this expungement of history going on and rewriting it anew that we've been discussing. She said, you know, in, in the schools, they're teaching kids how to interpret history before they even teach them the underlying history that they're supposed to interpret, which is, to me, a working definition of indoctrination. And, and that's something that is particularly pernicious and doesn't seem to be 
um, there doesn't seem to be the organized opposition that should demand. Uh, I agree. There was a piece in the Washington Post a couple of days ago about student activists uh, in the, for the Baltimore city schools that were calling for this uh, Baltimore to adopt a anti-racist curriculum where they basically get rid of, I guess, most, if not all, of the white writers. Uh, but it's not Mark Twain's fault that, uh, that, that Baltimore students have some of the worst reading scores in the nation. I think that the only, the only city that has worse school ratings scores is Detroit. Uh, and the state of Maryland has poured so much money into Baltimore schools, uh, but, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the money's basically vanished. And just, kids don't learn how to read, but now they're saying that their problem is because of, you know, Mark Twain or Shakespeare or whatever. And I'm thinking um, there's a lot, of, a lot of people have learned how to read for the last 150 years based on Mark Twain or Shakespeare or um, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, did some wonderful writing. So I, I mean, it's like it's it's kind of like a circus shell game, where the activists are always making one more demand, and you try to meet that, then they move the cup, and you're not going to satisfy them. Well, because they're professional extortionists, and and oh, by the way, to your point of the internal logic of the argument, um, they're being unduly uh, marginalized by things they're not reading. Uh, that seems to me a tough argument to make out exactly. He is James Bovard, author of 10 books, member of the USA Today Board of Contributors and frequent contributor to The Hill and contributing editor for American Conservative. James Bovard, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, closed with uh, a couple of reading assignments, but I'll give you the top lines, get you on your way. One is the uh, Wall Street Journal's weekend interview with uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, living his mother's American dream. And, um, you know, goes through Tim Scott's uh, remarkable life and his family and uh, the uh, flack he has taken for being a Republican. But uh, I just want to focus on one thing he said. It's about... Uh, that uh, comment that my home state senator sack of Durbin, Senator Dick Durbin, made last week when uh, there was discussion of Tim Scott's police reform legislation on the Senate floor. And uh, Dick Durbin referred to that as tokenism, Tim Scott's legislation. And uh, Scott saying in this uh, interview, and I'm glad that it was taken up and he spoke in no uncertain terms. Quoting Tim Scott, I'm just really ticked off about how casual and cavalier he gets to be as a Democrat leader to race bait in an intentional and unnecessary and unfortunate way. Scott says he doesn't think Durbin is a racist. No, he's just a demagogue. Race is just one of the tools he uses. My comment, not Tim Scott's. Um, But Tim Scott added uh, that uh, Durbin has, quote, adopted a rhythm and a cadence that is consistent with what so- sometimes the elite liberals can get away with because they're supposedly woke. And that's a problem because it just denigrates everybody who's not in their way of thinking about the world. Yeah, and that's a pretty good diagnosis, pretty good diagnosis. And I'm glad he made it. And I'm glad he called out Dick Durbin for race baiting as he was. And what a shameful thing it is for the so-called urban sophisticates and suburban sophisticates, for that matter, of Illinois, to send that 
race-hustling demagogue back to the Senate time and time again, every six years since 1996. Disgrace. So I hope you hear Tim Scott's words loud and clear. Uh, Also, uh, concerning words from Nolan Finley writing at Detroit News, friend of the show, for Nolan Finley on our show before, editorial page editor. Will my grandchildren live free? Here's a question you might want to contemplate in these times. Talk about. Nolan Finley writing, concerns about where the country is headed over the next quarter of century are theoretical for him. If it goes bad, all I'll be able to do about it is roll over my grave. And yet as a father and grandfather, I worry about whether America will be able to fix the things that are wrong while not destroying the things that have always been good. I'm afraid that in trying to perfect America, we are abandoning the ideals that inspired its creation. That is a legitimate fear. Uh, Finley asks, will my grandchildren be allowed to stand as empowered individuals, free to make their own decisions about how they live, to express their opinions, no matter how unpopular? Will they be able to resist demands that they march to the beat of a single drummer? Those are great questions that Finley asks. And uh, once upon a time, they were easy to answer. At present, they are not. And that should uh, strike uh, a note of uh, concern in the hearts of every freedom-loving American. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.